0: hello hello and welcome back to polar times the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet Hi everyone, welcome back to Polar Times. It is lovely to have you back. Apologies for the short hiatus that we've been having. Uh, yeah, so today, we, I said at the beginning there that, that this was just another episode, but it's not. This is not just any old episode. This is a very exciting episode because it is the first in a brand new series which we are bringing to you. As you may or may not know, APEX, the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists, is made up of a a few different project groups, Uh, the podcast is one of them, and the leaders of one of our fellow project groups, the Science and Diplomacy Group in uh, Arctic regions, reached out to us recently and said, hi, we have this idea for um, a brand new series which would, you know, further the aims of our project group, but also be lots of super interesting information for your listeners. So, we said hi, that sounds great, we would love to help you uh, produce that. So this is what that is. You probably have read the bio of this episode, and you probably know who the guest is. Do you know what, I'm just going to let them introduce it themselves, because they do uh, a really good job of it. Um, So I'm going to hand over to you Inga and Nicholas from the Science and Diplomacy Group. Welcome to the first episode in our new series, Sense of the Arctic.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of Sense of the Arctic, a special series of conversations organized by APEX Science and Diplomacy Project Group and released as part of the APEX podcast, Polar Times. My name is Ingrid Heppard and I'm a PhD candidate at Université Laval doing biogeochemical studies and modeling within the ocean and sea ice.
2: My name is Nicholas Parlato. I'm a PhD student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks within the interdisciplinary PhD program, uh, and I'm studying uh, the governance of the Bering Strait region from a a decolonial and post human perspective.
1: Uh, We at Apex have created this series in order to highlight the insight, acuity, and power of indigenous peoples and knowledge systems in the area of the Arctic environmental observing. Many of you listening to this podcast are young scientists working with immense data sets derived from technological assets like satellite and monitoring stations. These tools provide invaluable data for enhancing the scientific picture of the changing Arctic and laying groundwork for science informed decision making. In a word, however, these tools are not enough. The deep uh, place based knowledge, subtlety of observation, and eco-cultural ethic of arctic indigenous people which have been excluded from scientific consideration for decades are recently being recognized for their value in understanding the ecology and cultural dynamics of the arctic there is still however a long way to go and it is the work of multiple generations of scientists and representi- representatives of indigenous people to evolve the scientific process to one that engages with multiple knowledge systems Structural violence and historical colonial history.
2: So, to launch us in our podcast, Pursuit of More Holistic, Just, and Equitable Practices in Arctic Science, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Noor Johnson, research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado Boulder, principal investigator for ELOCA, the Exchange for Local Observations and Knowledge of the Arctic, and the social sciences and knowledge management lead at the NSF Navigating the New Arctic Community Office. Dr. Johnson is trained as a cultural anthropologist and has done research on issues related to climate change, community-based monitoring, and indigenous governance in northern Canada and around the Arctic. She contributes to multiple efforts to build capacity for community-led data management and recognition of Indigenous data sovereignty, having worked with a number of Indigenous international and research organizations on science policy issues, including the Inuit Circumpolar Council and the Smithsonian Institution. It is a real pleasure to have Dr. Johnson with us today. So I'm going to turn things over to Inga to uh, lead us with our first question.
1: Great. So, Noah, I wanted to start off very basic and ask you to explain a bit about what is CBM and why it's important and how it dovetails with observing methods of southern uh, Western science. Uh, what are the origins of CBM and how has it, its practice and reception changed in recent years?
3: Well, thank you, Inga and Nicholas, for that great uh, introduction and for that question. I think it's a good question to start with. And I think there are really two answers depending on your perspective. Um, So community-based monitoring or observing is a term that really reflects the formalization of what people do and what they've always done in the Arctic, which is to carefully observe their surroundings in order to engage in everyday activities like harvesting and traveling from one place to another. And I think those who've been lucky enough to spend some time around elders in the Arctic have often heard them say that when when they're when they were growing up on the land, when they were young, the first thing that they had to do every morning was to go outside and observe the weather. So you know, they'll sometimes they'll say, "Oh, my brother used to make me get up and go outside and and come, you know, see what I saw, come back in and, re- and report about what I saw," and what they would be sharing with, with those stories was that this was really an important life skill and a life lesson that you have to really be observant, um, in order to be successful in that environment and to be able to be a a good hunter, a harvester, a provider for your family, um, to keep everybody safe. So those skills are, are just part of life in the Arctic. Um, and, um, and they, you know, Practice observing many different things, including animal behavior and the condition of animals, the weather, the shapes of clouds under different weather conditions, different formations of ice, precipitation, um, all of these things are, are just things that are important to know about and to be able to pay attention to. And, and um, that sort of attentive care is is a part of the indigenous system of knowing and being and thriving in the Arctic. And, you know, as I think most people know, the Arctic can be very unpredictable and, and can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how to have those very careful and attentive skills um, of observing. So that is really the origin of community-based observing, um, but there's a, a newer um, sort of understanding that's emerged in the research context and in the scientific context. And that's what we're referring to today is community-based monitoring and observing. Um, and that's really the formalization of those skills of observing um, and and collecting and documenting those observations in a in a very formal and structured way. Um, and that practice of sort of structured documentation comes from our uh, the Western science tradition. So that that tradition that everything needs to be written down and documented in order to be called knowledge. Um, in indigenous systems and indigenous ways of knowing you share knowledge orally and you share it through observing what others are doing and, and demonstration and sort of physical practice. But in in the Western science tradition, you, you share knowledge and transmit knowledge by writing it down and documenting it formally. So uh, most of the time, when we hear people talking about community-based monitoring today, they're referring to that formal practice of documentation, um, but underlying it. And I think, um, Really, in the best examples of community-led observing and monitoring, it really does engage the the ways of knowing and being in the Arctic and that kind of skill and attention that Arctic community members bring to observing. And I think um, you know it's also important to to be aware and to recognize that communities and researchers have different reasons for monitoring and observing the environment, um, and and they bring different interests into these community-based observing programs. So. For communities, it's usually based in a practical need for a particular type of information. Um, And a lot of times that's also linked to a desire to gain more control over decisions that affect the environment that they live in. Um, So, you know, for example, decisions about the use of natural resources. Um, A lot of times you need to have carefully documented observations and knowledge um, in order to, to inform decision-making in a way that decision-makers and the scientists who often advise them will feel comfortable with. Um, so that's one of the reasons I think that communities often are interested in, in being involved with or undertaking these types of programs. Um, and federal and state governments are often also interested in in community-based monitoring or CBM, as as maybe we can call it for short, um, their interest comes usually, again, from the interest in having timely information that they need for decision-making. And a lot of times, again, it's decision-making about natural resource management, about land use planning, um, things where you really need um, ongoing observations of change, you need a baseline of information, and then you need really good, timely information. And so that's another Kind of source of interest and in driving the growth of interest in CBM is that use for kind of um, different kinds of government decision making, um, and then finally, I think scientists are interested in in CBM um, sometimes in a more abstract way or in a way that feeds into some of their larger investigations or, or interests. Um, and for them, you know, a lot of times they're interested in um, collaboration with community members because. Arctic residents are you know, on the ground in the community all year long, in, and so they can kind of do this sustained data collection that it's really impossible for somebody who lives outside of the Arctic to do. Um, so you know, a scientist can fly into the Arctic and collect data for a little while or set up a remote, you know, a remote station, but that's really different than having somebody who's there all the time and who can make sort of continued or regular observations of the environment. And then I also think, and, and this goes back to your introduction, that there's been a real growth of, of recognition that indigenous knowledges um, and methodologies are really, really important to Arctic research overall. And they bring really different insights and understandings and that they can contribute significantly to understanding Arctic change. So those are all different reasons that there's sort of a, a growing interest in this, um, uh, this field of community-based monitoring and observing. Can you guys hear a thunderstorm in the background? I'm hoping that you that it's not disrupting what I'm saying. I have a big thunderstorm here. No, okay, that's good. Maybe you
2: all can't <laughs> hear my cat. Is my cat audible? No,
3: nope,
1: I
2: can't no, hear
3: a cat.
1: Good. No. <laughs> I'm I'm just that's worried great. about my dogs. Yeah. <laughs> as Well,
3: I don't hear any dogs either. Headphones are amazing. They really do filter out a lot of the background noise. So that's, good.
1: that's very difficult. <laughs>
2: Nor, thank you so much for that that um, really thorough introduction and especially you know taking note that you know so many things that we work with in Arctic science are um, long-standing practices that, that that you know Westerners coming to the Arctic is not the discovery of the Arctic or the um, the only true understanding of it. No, in fact, in fact, the people who have lived there for the longest have this deep place based knowledge of it. And so just uh, the fact that this is being formalized now does not mean that it hasn't had immense relevance for for centuries and millennia prior to um, this current. You know, you might call it a, a paradigm shift in what's happening in in the Arctic science world. Um, you work with um, the um with I- ILOCA, the exchange for uh, local observations and knowledge of the Arctic. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the um, the origins of that group and kind of what it does, as well as what kind of successes um, that you all have seen through your work.
3: Yeah, sure. So I think um, sometimes people are confused about ILOCA. So I'm glad that you asked this question, because it gives me the chance to introduce what we do. And and explain how we're involved with community-based monitoring. Um, So, ALOCA has been around since 2006, and we are um, a program that partners and supports Arctic communities and researchers that are doing work with communities um, to find ways to collaboratively manage data and to share data when it's relevant and of interest to the knowledge holders to do so. Um so that's sort of that piece of recognizing um, the the data owners, the knowledge owners and stewards of that knowledge as as needing to be involved and making all kind all all decisions about where the data is um, stored and shared and how it's shared. And Aloka's goal is to to work collaboratively to um, you know when it's relevant to to make data available from these local local projects and local programs available. Um, and a lot of what we do is to co-develop or co-design online platforms that can um, host and share data in a way that that makes it um, not only available, but accessible and understandable to um, different users. And so for um, community-based monitoring programs, we um, we work with our partners to develop customized data management tools and products like Digital atlases and databases. And um, I can give a few examples that, that we've um, of, of projects we've worked on collaboratively that are really relevant to CBM. So one example is a product that we developed with um, the Sizonet and AOK program. Um, and that stands for Seasonal Iso Network and Alaska Arctic Observatory and Knowledge Hub. Um, and these are projects that have been based out of the, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, but have worked very closely with communities in Northern coastal Alaska um, since um, 2006. And they have have collected uh, more than 8,000 observations of sea ice weather and wildlife. So th- these are the observers um, that are sort of on the coast collecting these observations. And ILOCA helped design a database that hosts them and that makes it possible to search through um, and and identify relevant observations from that very now large and continuing to grow um, uh, set of observations. And um, another example is the arcticcbm.org, the Atlas of Community-Based Monitoring and Indigenous Knowledge in a Changing Arctic. And that's a really different kind of... um, Product. That's an atlas that's showcasing examples of CBM projects from across the Arctic. And this was really led by the Inuit Circumpolar Council um, back in 2013 when they were doing their international work and um, in engaging in international science and policy-making settings. They they really recognized that scientists and that international policy community didn't have any way to know about the kinds of community-led observing projects that were happening. There wasn't any real place to go to find information about them. And so that that was sort of the origin of this tool, um, where we have collected, with permission from all of the projects, we've collected some metadata about their programs, and we've, we're sharing it, and it makes it possible to, to sort of find projects that are collecting similar types of observations or interests, and it has a networking function for the projects themselves as well as for Arctic others in the Arctic policymakers um, scientists to help find those those programs more easily. And we're actually right now working on an update so we're going to be the last time we added um, to that inventory was in 2016 and we'll be doing a whole new update of new projects into the Atlas um, hopefully by later this year or early next year that will be complete. And then finally, Aloka also has a a networking role. So we have convened workshops that bring together CBM projects and practitioners so that they can really gain a better understanding of the common challenges and shared practices that they have. And we currently host a working group on long-term observations that has members from Alaska, Canada, and Greenland who are all working on improving their data sharing tools. And some of those Programs we we help to build the tools, and in other cases, um, we're just inviting them to be part of our our network and and share um, from their own experience and the, the the tools that they've developed.
2: Fantastic! Thanks for explaining um, a bit more about what ILOCA does and like the the kind of vast array of programs and support that it provides. Um, across all of the uh, all you know the circumpolar north and different scientific and indigenous communities Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about kind of what has the growth in these programs looked like you said the last um, the last uh, assessments showed that there were a little under 200 monitoring programs in 2016 do you think that that's going to have grown immensely since then?
3: yeah, so when we did that initial assessment, we our goal wasn't to to capture every single monitoring program that it, that was out there, um, mostly because it's really hard to do that. They're not all um, you know necessarily linked in with larger networks. And um, I think if you have a sort of unlimited amount of time and capacity, it might be possible to track them down, but but we did not. Um, so that number, 200, is probably not the right number at the time, but what I can say is that over the last 10 years or so, um, there has been a lot of growth in these types of programs and um, and also different terms that people are using to apply to them. So I think we, we've been calling these um, community-based monitoring or community-based observing programs um, there's been a growth of interest in from communities in in calling them community-led monitoring and distinguishing between the projects that are really um, controlled by communities versus the projects where a scientist is is leading the effort and and might enlist community members to participate, but it's not um, the the program has not really coming from the community and may not be designed around their needs in the same way. So there's been a lot of work to kind of further distinguish and differentiate between different approaches. And there's also been a lot of um, new programs coming online. Um, and I think you also see different names like the, there are there are a lot of Indigenous guardian programs that are um, kind of, that's a model that's been growing across Northern Canada, as well as um, different parts of, of Alaska. Um, and that um i'll talk a little bit more maybe later about that model but but that's another type of program that incorporates monitoring and observing so i think it's hard to quantify the growth because it's coming from different um different areas and and it's not always these programs are not always called the same thing um but i think it's pretty clear that there are more and more um efforts at the community level and that there's more interest and attention in the role of the community in leading and shaping um, those different efforts, and so those are two things that that we have seen um, increasing over the past ten years.
2: Cool, thank you so much. I'll turn it over to Inga.
3: Yeah, that's great.
1: Um, seeing that you've already spoken a little bit about Seasonate and Aoka, could you tell us a bit more about uh, some of the other platforms that are currently being used for Arctic CBM programs? Maybe like Siku or Leo. Um, and the indigenous sentinel networks, um, and a bit about what
3: distinguishes the
1: difference between them.
3: Sure, absolutely. Um, I think that um, you know, as I said, there's been a lot of growth in in CBM programs, and there's also been a lot of um, sort of changes in how the data from these these programs is um, is captured and and um, shared and stored and and some of those changes are being driven by um, technology changes. So, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen a tremendous growth of cloud-based data storage platforms and also um, a real proliferation of mobile devices. So, you know, many, many community members um, in Northern Canada and in, in Alaska Um, have access to their own mobile device. And that wasn't necessarily true 10 years ago. And so we're now seeing programs that are designing, um, you know, apps that can be used on those mobile phones to collect data, and it becomes an integrated part of the monitoring and observing effort. So um, Siku is a good example of this. Siku is a a program that was started in Sunny Kilowat, Canada, um, by the Arctic Eider Society. And the focus of Siku is on ice safety, language preservation, and weather. And, um, even though it has its origins in Santa the, the goal of Siku was to design a, um, an application that would be usable and useful to, um, CBM projects across the Arctic. And so it includes a mobile app as well as a, um, an interface to be used on on a desktop. So yeah, the Siku, the Siku platform, um, which was developed by the Arctic Eider Society in Sunny Kilouac, um, was designed to host observations from other programs across the Arctic. So just for example, I know they just finished translating their their platform into Greenlandic, and they're hoping that more community observers in Greenland will start to use Siku. And um so that's a custom app and tool that can be downloaded onto a mobile phone um, or, or viewed on a computer. And then I think that the Indigenous Sentinels Network is another example that's maybe similar to Siku in that it has its own set of mobile apps and, and it has an online database. Um, and that was designed for use by the originally by um, the Aleut communities of St. Paul and St. George but um, I think they've found a lot of interest by other CVM programs in those tools, and so they've since expanded them and and shared them with other Alaskan communities. And I think are also doing some um, work to to share those tools in in um, into Canada as well now, and in other other places. So I think a lot of um, you know, some of these examples, you'll see people investing a fair amount of resources in, develop, in developing these um, tools that are designed specifically to capture community-based monitoring data, and then sharing those, um, you know, based on interest with other, other projects. And then you'll also see other examples of programs that use sort of more basic data management um, approaches or, or adapt things that um, kind of already are out there um, as free online tools. For example, um, there's a website called sitsi.org, that's short for citizenscience.org. Um, and that's a platform that a lot of different projects, including some community-based monitoring projects, use to share um, and host their data for free. So there are many tools that exist. Um, you also mentioned LEO. That stands for the Local Environmental Observer um, program, and that was developed by the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, and it uses a mobile app as well as internet an internet interface, uh, but the idea behind it is a little different, so it's not really designed as a community-based monitoring tool. Um, it allows individuals to share unusual environmental events and then get some feedback and responses from experts who might have something to, to say about what, what's being observed. So. Anyone can create an account on Leo and share an observation, and it doesn't have to be a sustained engagement in the same way that um, a community-based monitoring program usually requires um, monitors to observe the, you know, over time and have repeated observations. So those are just some other examples of, of programs that are out there that are using um, web-based tools and applications to manage their data.
2: Yeah, thank you, Noor. That's really important to just see the wide range of um, kind of different options that are embedded into these, the kind of priorities that each of these programs uh, can uh, kind of, you know, uh, uh, focus on. And that this is this is such a rapidly expanding and, and very specialized field, um, and hopefully some of these apps are, uh, you know, that these apps are just uh, being able to meet all the different needs that communities have for recording their observations and keeping track of events in their local environments. Um, I was wondering. So, one of one of the things that I've heard about from uh, reading and learning about um, these types of initiatives is that one of the long term goals is that these would um, these data sets that are being gathered would be able to support um, tribal governments, specifically in Alaska, but I'm sure also in Canada and elsewhere um, in the Arctic, support them in pursuing policy goals or uh, pursuing funding in various ways, funding for scientific or kind of community development projects. And I was wondering if you had any examples on cases where data derived from um, one of these programs uh, contributed to a change in policy or governance for that community.
3: Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think you're right that that's sort of the um, the goal of a lot of programs is to be able to share the information in order to make a change and in, in order to increase um, kind of the ability of, of communities to have a say in decision-making. Um, and I think even though that's a goal of many programs, um, I think it's unfortunately still aspirational for a lot, of, a lot of CBM programs. But I can think of a few examples that I can share One is the PISUNA program, which is actually based in Greenland, and PISUNA is a partnership that involves the the Hunters and Fishers Union, KNAPK, as well as several government ministries and municipal governments, and their goal is to directly connect observations of community members to decision-making around natural resource use in Greenland. Um, in Greenland, a lot of the, the decisions are made at the government level, and there wasn't any real mechanism to, ha- to have communities have a voice in that. So um, that program is organized in a very specific way to feed into the decision process. Once, once the observers record their observations, um, they have um, committee meetings where the, the local committee members look at the observations and then make management recommendations based on what they're, what the, what they're observing. And then those recommendations get passed on to the government and the government decides, um, which to adopt. And, and, you know, I don't know, um, it would be interesting to follow up and see how many of them really led to a government action. I do know one example in one case that, um, there was a decision to limit access of fishing trawlers to particular fishing areas because of the observations that the, the pisuna observers were making. Um, so I know that at least, you know, sometimes that, that process was working and was successful for them. I know another example um, is the Indigenous Sentinels Network, which I just talked about a little bit. The Aleut community of St. Paul has been monitoring wildlife species for, for I think, about 16 years, maybe more than that, and they um, they actually use that information in implementing the co-management agreement that they have between their tribe and the federal government. Um, and I my understanding is that co-management agreement is a little bit unusual that they are they have a direct agreement between their tribe and the National Marine Fisheries Service, and so they've used the information they've gathered to um, kind of help help shape the way that the um, the government is considering um, community knowledge and information in setting quotas. And so I think they've had some success as well. Um, But I know, you know, one of the challenges is that, you know, I think sometimes programs imagine that by writing down or, or you know, taking careful track of, of what they're observing, that the information will be able to kind of be moved into those decision contexts. And um, without having a direct link or an agreement as part of the monitoring program, I think sometimes that can be hard to implement in practice. So that's an area where I think there's, we're going to, I hope we'll see some changes in the coming years as as um, communities are able to advocate for for more attention to the observations that they're making. In, in the case of Nunavut, there are um, a number of co-management bodies that are set up to, you know, oversee decision making. Um, but then the government has a lot of say over who gets to sit on those boards. And um, so I know that there's, you know, just because you have a co-management agreement doesn't necessarily mean that Indigenous knowledge is um, treated equally in those decisions. Um, there's often still challenges in implementing it in a way that communities feel good about. Um, I do I do also want to mention, again, the Indigenous Guardian Program um, model, which is growing and in that model the the role of monitoring and observing is part of an integrated program where um, the goal is to promote indigenous custodianship of their lands and territories and so again built into the model there's a connection between observing and and decision making and you know sort of indigenous rights and and indigenous leadership um, so I think when it's when it's built into the the model and the approach it it may have more chance of success Um, but again i think you're always going to see struggles and things are never easy they're never implemented you know is is the way that they they necessarily look so um communities are still even in those cases still um sometimes challenged and struggling to have their observations treated as as you know credible in the same way that scientific observations are are treated
1: what are some tools that our listeners might make use of to both explore the landscape of CBM and enhance their own ability to engage with and
3: advocate for IK and Indigenous
1: people in their research?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I can mention some, some things that I've found really useful. I think For those listeners who haven't had the chance to review the Inuit Circumpolar Council's recently released protocols for ethical and equitable engagement, that would be a great place to start. Um, They went through a really careful and thorough process of developing those those protocols. And um, I think that's it's helpful and important for all researchers who are working in the in the Arctic to um, be very familiar with them. Another resource in a similar kind of vein, is the Inuit Tapirit Kanatami's National Inuit Strategy on Research. And so ITK is the um, National Canadian Inuit Organization. And that strategy really has a, a, a very good background and introduction that explains why a different approach to research is needed and why data and knowledge are really essential for Indigenous um, self-government and governance. Um, And then they lay out a a strategy and an approach to changing the way that um, the priorities that we've placed in in Arctic research and to support um, Inuit priorities. Um, So to sort of reverse and, and, you know, place a much greater emphasis on equity um, and supporting the perspectives and priorities of, of Arctic community members. And then. If if um, listeners are interested in CBM-specific reading, I think there's some pretty good reviews that have been done in the last couple of years. So there was a, a review that um, Reed, Brune, and Nature published in Extractive Industries and in Society that was um, looking at CBM and um, supporting Indigenous governance in the context of um, extractive industry. And that was really useful to me to read. And I really like the article by uh, Nicole Wilson and her colleagues on CBM as the practice of Indigenous governance, again, making that link, that really important governance link between, you know, what's the role of CBM and supporting um, Indigenous uh, governance practices. That was published in 2018 in the Journal of Environmental Management. And, And then Finn Danielson has published a number of I think, helpful articles over the years, and then more recently has um, published a book on community-based monitoring in the Arctic. And I actually have extra copies. I was a co-author on that book, and I'd love to send a copy to a listener who would like a copy, so they could feel free to, to reach out to me if they'd like me to mail them one. I'd be happy to do that.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and we will definitely put all the links um, to, to the papers and reviews that you've spoken about Um, with the podcast. So if there's any listeners that are keen, just read the bio um, for the podcast.
2: Terrific. Yeah, I I think the more resources that we can provide here, the better. And this is very much geared towards, um, you know, our APEX Early Career Scholars area, um, you know, audience. And so, Um, I think they would really appreciate actually having these things to cut, you know, they can listen to a podcast and then follow it up with, with additional, um, research. So I kind of, this is, this is going back a little bit to these questions about, you know, the role of, of community-based monitoring in, uh, indigenous governance and self-determination. And uh, we also are, are all aware that, uh, across the circumpolar Arctic, um, governance arrangements for indigenous peoples vary quite dramatically. Um, you have different different uh, legislation and um, structures of governance between Russia, uh, Scandinavia, Canada, and Alaska. Um, so self-determination is going to mean different things to each of those communities in their own ways. But I wanted to kind of reference a paper um, that was released by the Center for Arctic Policy Studies out of IARC um, that was written by Nikush Carlo, who's a member of the United States Arctic Research Commission. Um, and she's also a founder of the, uh, uh, her own consulting company, CNC Northern Solutions. And she wrote in this paper, quote, resource management organizations have sought involvement of indigenous communities in research due to the incredible longitudinal data captured in indigenous knowledge. This data has often been used to influence the regulations around subsistence harvests and resources in ways that do not take into account the well-being of indigenous communities, but instead are used against us to benefit commercial or government interests. So this is, she's citing cases where um, this traditional knowledge or this traditional ecological knowledge gathered has been exploited um, against community interests. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, this more explicitly about this relationship between community-based monitoring, community well-being, and indigenous self-determination, and maybe start with just talking about what self-determination is as you've uh, encountered it in your conversations with um, with Arctic communities.
3: Yeah, that's great. Well, I do think the link to governance and um, thinking about the potential of CBM as um, playing a a role in increasing indigenous governance and self-determination is is important to think about. And and, um, so, you know, my understanding of self-determination is that it refers to the ability of a group of people to really have control over their future and to play a significant role in shaping decisions about things that affect them. And I think when community-based monitoring is really initiated and led by the community, um, it's focused on improving the knowledge base or visibility and legibility of what community members know, but that others sometimes have a hard time accepting. So a lot of times community members observe and know um, things about the environment and about animals and animal populations, animal health and well-being. Um, and those animals are really part of their lives in a way that um, they aren't for the rest of us. and so, the knowledge that they can bring through the formal do- formal documentation of that knowledge through CBM, you know, has the potential, as we've already talked about, to really potentially shape the way those those um, those animals are and other aspects of the environment are managed. Um, and I think in you know in the Western tradition, we talk about natural resource management, and that's a term that is very Western. You know, so the idea of turning The all all aspects of the environment into commodities or resources that um, we sort of assume that we have the right to use, Um, and those are not ideas that are resonant with indigenous ways of thinking. And in indigenous communities, there's a relationship there, and so you know, using and harvesting animals is based on a a, a relationship with those animals, and so they really have a different way of thinking about. those decisions and the role of, um, uh, you know, the, those of us who use animals as being stewards and not just takers. Um, and so I think that there is a potential for CBM to help support indigenous self-determination, but, you know, it, it really depends on the type of program and the connections that the community is able to make to, um, co-management boards or state or, um, Territorial decision-making processes. A lot of the decisions about these resources are still made in a way that excludes community members, and that um, that's a source of continued frustration, and it has been for a very long time. Um, and I think you know that quote from Nakush Carlo is really important. It highlights that the fact that the decisions are made to serve other people's interests. So you know, commercial fishermen, sport harvesters. Um, industry. There are a lot of people, a lot of groups that are using the Arctic environment that are not Arctic residents. And so I think, um, yeah, CBM can be a tool for making community knowledge more legible in these non-local contexts where decisions are made. But, um, you know, we also have to be aware that there's always going to be resistance, um, that things are going to get in the way of observations being used in, in the ways that communities might like. Um, But yeah, that is the goal, and I think, you know, as more of us become aware and are able to support community-led efforts, um, hopefully there will be more and more connection to self-determination and
1: um, Indigenous governance. Okay, Um, that was great. Um, Talking about having that resistance, what is the ideal future for the relationship between Indigenous knowledge and Western science? Do you think phrases like two-eyed seeing, boundary spanners, and co-production are going to become commonplace in Arctic observing? Great question, Inga.
3: I think for me, the ideal future for Arctic communities is that they would be able to shape the direction of research that affects them, and that Indigenous knowledge would be respected as an important source of information for decisions, not just locally at the community level, but nationally and internationally as well. And I personally hope that we'll move away from using terms like co-production of knowledge because these terms tend to mean more to academics than they do to community members. I think I get a lot of comments from you know, community members that academics tend to make things more complicated than they need to be um, by creating these specialized terms. So I think the goal for me is to have more equitable research practices that, that truly benefit communities and in which different kinds of knowledge contribute and are treated as equally valuable and important to understanding the Arctic and to sustaining it into the future.
2: Fantastic.
3: Well,
1: then, um, from my side, Nur, thank you very, very much for joining us um, on this podcast, our first episode. Um, and uh, thank you for giving a background on CBM for especially somebody like me who is so... Um, um busy with the physical sciences that um we sometimes forget about the importance of cbm and that how much uh, importance and weight it can actually bring to to our science Um, so thank you very much from my side
3: well thank
2: you have my thanks as yeah. well. <laughs> Sorry.
3: Thank you, Inga and Nicholas. Well, I'm really pleased that you invited me. I'm honored to be your first speaker of this series. I love the the title of the series, Sense of the Arctic. And I'm excited to listen to um, the other people you are, are able to bring on and interview and um especially excited to hear from community members. I know that's Um, sometimes a challenge. And I know you're planning to engage and have some um, community observers and indigenous knowledge holders be part of this series. So um, I can't wait um, to listen to the next episodes. And thanks so much for having me today.
0: Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.